The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Okay, we're underway here at the Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry. I teach at Brown University. I'm Merton Stoltz professor and a professor of economics at Brown. And I'm also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which sponsors the Glenn Show. And I'm with Norman Finkelstein. Norman's an, a political scientist and a prolific uh, independent uh, intellectual and writer uh, with wide interest and a, uh, I mean, I want my audience to know who Norman Finkelstein is. And if I may, with your permission, Norman, I want to share, you know, some of your books, the most recent of which is I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, <laughs> which is uh, a critique of uh, woke uh, political culture, which we'll get to in a moment. The Holocaust Industry, 2000. Beyond Hutzpah, 2005. Gaza, an inquest into uh, its martyrdom, 2018. Uh, what else have we got here? A Nation on Trial. Uh, what Gandhi says about nonviolence. Uh, this Time We Went Too Far, 2010. Knowing Too Much, 2012. And on and on. The Rise and Fall of Palestine. Uh, this is uh, an amazing uh, uh, range of productivity, Norman. I see a lot of it has to do with Israel, Palestine, Jewish identity. Um, you're infamous. Um, not sure if I'm infamous. I would say that <clears throat> that despite my having been, and I don't say this is a matter of pity. Honestly, I don't. I want to invoke pity. I'll give a trigger warning. Be careful. I'm going to try to invoke pity. I'm just speaking as a factual matter. Uh, I've managed to have a presence, notwithstanding the fact that in mainstream culture, I'm uh, never cited, never mentioned uh, in books, never invited to speak. I've never been on national television, never been on national You've never record. been on national television? No, absolutely. Not even close. Not even close. <laughs> I once was on for 20 minutes, I think about 35 years ago, on NPR. No, 10 minutes. 10 minutes on NPR. And that's where it began and that's where it ended. So I think what I would say is, notwithstanding my consecutive cancellations, I've managed to exert some sort of influence and have some sort of presence of which I derive a certain amount of gratification. Okay, I'm just going to ask you this straight up. Do you think that you've been blacklisted in effect by uh, the influence of people friendly to Israel and Jewish causes, not only Jews, but many, who deeply resent the trenchant critique that you've elaborated in book after book after book after book about what's going on in Israel-Palestine uh, and about the various um, uh, pathological character, uh, features of uh, American Jewish identity. If, if I can say that, and correct me if I say something that's wrong. Uh, 
that uh, you, you basically been shut out uh, because uh, what I see is uh, a career of uh, scholarly productivity and a, a fierce devotion to uh, to detail and and a kind of encyclopedic approach. I mean, your footnotes. I mean, you you know you've actually read the stuff. I'm reading about Kimberly Crenshaw. I'm reading about. Uh, 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 Ibram X. Kendi, your critiques of them in your in your most most recent book, and I said this guy's read all this shit. I mean, I haven't actually bothered to read, you know, <laughs> in detail the literatures that are entailed here. And this is what I do for a living. So, I'm I'm sorry, it took me a long time to ask the question. Are they blacklisting you, man, because of what you've had to say about Jewish uh, uh, interest and affairs in the world, being a Jew yourself? I wouldn't say it was. Because of the things I said, I think it's what you just said. It was because I was tenacious. I was industrious. I was conscientious. I did not calculate the effect of my words in terms of my career trajectory. And I was, if I can say so, and I see no point for false modesty, just as I don't see any point in tooting your own horn when it doesn't deserve to be tooted, uh, <clears throat> I think I was <clears throat> affected in the public arena. It's not a matter of effectivity in scholarly journals, which the various Israel lobbies don't much care about. It's not that I was effective at academic conferences, which they don't care about. I was quite effective in the public arena. When I would come speak during the ninth, during the 2000s, roughly the 2000s, but even before, when I would speak before a university audience, even in small towns, even in small towns, my audience would be between 500 and 1500. Now, of course, it was in part due to the fact that I had been so demonized that people came out out of curiosity. <laughs> right. So. Um, the fact, however, that they did come out and I gave both evidence that I wasn't the devil incarnate and I made a compelling enough presentation that I was able to win over large numbers of people to, so to speak, the cause. Uh, I think it was that that compelled uh, people uh, the, uh, some of the powers that be uh, to try successfully in certain respects uh, to cancel me. Uh, so, you know, academia, as you know, is a very freewheeling place. You can say pretty much anything and get away with it. So it wasn't just what I was saying. I think it was the venues where I was speaking. And also, I was... Competent. I was, you know, I don't think it's in any way an exaggeration to say I was pretty, you could say I was Captain Ahab with Moby Dick and trying to track down every detail, every fact, and it consumed 40 years of my life. I mean, my 40 years of my life, most of it was spent just reading through human rights reports, reading through various documents, primary documents, and trying to make as compelling powerful a statement as I could. And that came, ultimately, it came with a price. Okay. I have to confess that I'm ignorant about a lot of the controversies that swirled around you earlier in your career with these books uh, about the Holocaust industry or about uh, 
you know, Holocaust denial or whatever. I don't know enough to be able to give the other side. I know there must be another side. And so I have to invite you to, to describe, since we've started on this line of conversation, what was all the fuss about and what did you think that you were accomplishing? And I wish that I could do it myself, but I, I, I'm simply not sufficiently knowledgeable to do so. But, but wh- why did Alan Dershowitz set out to cancel you? Uh, you know, which I gather is the story. You were up for tenure at DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, Dershowitz made a federal case out of the fact that whatever, and you could explain it. But what what was all what what? I think why I are they mad want, at you? I don't want to belabor this point because, uh, frankly, I want to hear from you, and I want to have a fruitful exchange in areas where you do have expertise. And I'm, I'm you know, there's a lot of curiosity. I want to hear you out. I want to hear how you argue your case. So I'll give a brief synopsis, and then hopefully we can move on and have that's, a that's fine. exchange of hymns. I think the, the core issue is as follows. Number one, Jews are very powerful economically in general and in cultural life in particular. Not just cultural life. Obviously, there are other areas where cultural life, publishing, academia, uh, we can use the expression, and I know we can have quarrels about every expression, but you could say they're wild, wild, wildly overrepresented in Hollywood, in publishing, whatever that means. I recognize that's a problem, not expre- a statement, but you understand what I'm trying to say. So, and Jews after the June 1967 war, uh, they developed a deep uh, 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 affection for Israel and were very protective of it against any criticism. So, and number three, uh, connecting to number one, uh, they had a lot of money, powerful lobbies, uh, and so it wasn't like the case which you'll be familiar with. Take the case of South Africa and apartheid in the 1980s. As you, I'm sure, will recall, South Africa never tried to make an intellectual defense of apartheid, say, in the United States. It was pointless. And there was never a South African lobby in intellectual life or public life. There was a South African Chamber of Commerce, which interacted with our chambers of commerce in order to say, you know, this is a good investment, so on and so forth. But you can't really claim that they made a intellectual, they made an attempt at an intellectual defense of Israel, in the case, excuse me, of South Africa. The case of Israel is very different. There was a spectacular proliferation of purported scholarship trying to make the Israeli case. And so once you plunged into that battle, the battle over the cause of the Palestinians, it meant that to be effective, you had to deal every day with a new publication, a new report, a new book, another new book, another new book. And then on top of that, you had to deal with this vast proliferation on the Nazi Holocaust, which as an industry sprung up in order to immunize Israel from criticism. The main point of the Holocaust industry was to claim Jewish suffering in the history of humanity was unique, 
and therefore a unique moral and legal standard should be applied to Israel, a more lax standard because of the unique suffering that Jews had historically endured. So you had to argue and battle on two fronts, the Israel-Palestine front and, quote-unquote, the Holocaust front. And that was a lot of work, as I said to you a moment ago, because the proliferation of propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, outright falsities and lies was so massive that, as I said, and you'll forgive me for repeating myself, it consumed four decades of my life. I really did very little else. Even when I explored things like Gandhi, and I read about 47 volumes of Gandhi's collected works, which run to 110 volumes, I read them from the period 1930 on, where you basically have the distillation of the quote-unquote mature Gandhi. And when I read it, I was really reading it to try to understand how to apply nonviolence to the situation in the occupied Palestinian territories. So everything directly, indirectly came back to that cause in which I allowed myself to be conscripted and which was very mentally, intellectually demanding. And along the way, and we'll leave it at that, along the way, I came across not just uh, distortions, not just inaccuracies, but outright frauds, uh, in the most vulgar sense of a fraud, and the most irrefutably a vulgar sense of a fraud by people who had gained a, a significant prominence and whose findings had been embraced by this Jewish community, which was very protective of Israel and therefore very hostile to those who came under attack for protecting Israel. And um, so my first, as it were, scholarly breakthrough came while I was in graduate school and demonstrated that this tome that had been published called From Time Immemorial, it was a national bestseller endorsed by the who's who of Jewish intellectual life, that the book was an outright, downright fraud. And now fast forward, that was 1984. And then fast forward roughly a decade, two decades, 2004, um, the same thing happened with Professor Dershowitz's book, The Case for Israel, which was basically a combination of fraud, falsification, and plagiarism. When I confronted him on the public affairs program about that, he turned positively rabid. Um, I remember the producer of the program, Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, after he left the studio, she called me up and she said, Norman, be careful. You're now like red meat to him. Be careful. I didn't know what to make of that. 
But it turned out those remarks, if not prophetic, turned out to be closer to the truth than I understood. As Professor Chomsky said, he said, after that program, uh, Professor Dershowitz went on the jihad to get me, you know? It was, as you could imagine, it was a combination of the commitment to his cause, Israel, but also it was professional and personal. I had exposed him, and um, I, uh, I paid the price. So that's it. That was worthwhile. I'm glad we did that. Uh, people are going to expect me to push back Israel apartheid, Palestine, South Africa. You want to take a moment to uh, spell out? I know we're not supposed to be talking about this, but uh, they're going to say, aren't they? Yeah, that, that's fine. That's fine. As I said, I don't want to go off on this tangent because then you don't get to participate except as an as a interlocu- except as a questioner. And I, I'm, I'm, I told you in the email, yours was the interviewer's most. Okay, important. let's skip it. Let's skip it. Let's skip it. Well, first answer, so people won't accuse me of being evasive, okay. but you're not doing the job. Um, the claim about Israel apartheid, at a point in time, it would require a long explanation and long justification. But nowadays, the major human rights organizations, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the main Israeli human rights organization, Bet Selim, the Israeli Mention Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories, they all refer to it as apartheid now. It ceased to be a controversial label. Even if you open up the current issue of uh, foreign affairs, now you'll agree foreign affairs is not a radical publication. There's an article by three respected scholars who refer to Israel's regime as a Jewish supremacist regime and as an apartheid regime. So uh, you don't really have a job to do right now because it's only the uh, fanatics who are denying the apartheid nature, nature of Israel right now. It used to be only the fanatics who made the claim, but now the tables have substantially turned and uh, uh, conventional public opinion would not find that a problematic uh, description of Israel. This triggers a thought in my mind uh, about what, it, what is the de facto nation I suppose the argument here is that there's really only one state between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. That's my opinion. And that's how it gets to be South Africa, in effect. I mean, and you're trying to do homelands if you cut it up or you're trying to somehow mm-hmm. parse the electorate so that you can shape it to be the demographic electorate that you want it to be. Well, that has the power of the state, has the police power, has the military, has the, you know, I Correct. guess that's the argument. <laughs> yeah. just, you just in less than 30 seconds made the argument that I would have made probably knowing me in about 30 minutes. So we <laughs> okay. let's, let's move on, because I, I can identify a little bit with your story, uh, Norman, although not to the same, you know, extent or whatever. But, you know, you're, if I may, uh, a Jewish intellectual who cares deeply about his people. I'm a black intellectual who cares deeply about my people. You have a interpretation of certain narratives and certain political dynamics that is sharply critical, but the criticism presumably is in the interest of preserving the 
dignity and the moral righteousness of your people. Again, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I'm in, in fact giving voice to my own motivation. These are my people. And so I can, I, I can kind of identify with you. And then you, you walk out on a limb and uh, it gets sawed off behind you. I, I, don't, I don't want to um, parse words right now because it seems so semantical and academic. However, I do recoil a bit at the idea of my people. Now, I'm not going, I'm not going to uh, assume this kind of self-hating posture because that's, for me, repugnant. However, I also want to be true to myself, and I want to act, you know, I'm coming to the end of my life, and I would like an accurate depiction of who I was, what motivates me. Uh, I'm as moved, I'm as moved by the life of Paul Robeson. I'm as moved by the life of W.E.B. Du Bois as I am by any Jewish person engaged in the struggle for justice. I will admit, I will admit, there's a corner of pride in me that half of the volunteers who went to fight in Spain during the Spanish Civil War, half of them were Jewish. But I will also say I'm moved deeply by Paul Robeson, a black man, going over to Spain to sing for the troops, the Republic troops, the loyalists, uh, during the Spanish Civil War. When he sings um, uh, the foreign surgeon generals, the foreign surgeon generals and the Madrid, your tears of sorrow. Even now, even now, as I, in my pathetic voice, I sing that, I get chills in my spine. These are for me great chapters in the history of struggle for the emancipation of humanity. And I don't distinguish, I don't, I know me. I don't distinguish between the Jewish component, though I admit I'm glad it's there. I would not be happy if there were a whole history of struggle and there wasn't a Jewish component of it. So I'm glad it's there. But do I rank it higher than say, a Robert Moses during the Civil Rights Movement, a Diane Nash during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I consider those stupendous testaments, stupendous testaments to the human spirit, and they all move me equally. I know that for sure. Maybe it sounds like a politically correct thing to say, but no. For me, it's genuine, it's authentic. It was how I was raised. It was the values that my parents imparted to me. From my parents' point of view, every kind of human suffering was the Holocaust. It wasn't the Holocaust and then everything else. You know, there's this whole field of academic inquiry called the Holocaust and other genocides. 
Well, it is. It's a whole field of uh, intellectual. They never, they never talk like that in my home. You know, the Russian people during World War II, they suffered like my parents suffered. That's how my parents saw it. They loved the, the Russian people, and the reason they loved them was very simple. From my parents' point of view, the Russians understood war. 27 million Russian people were exterminated by the Nazi invaders. They understood war. And for me, for my parents, that was the lens through which you viewed humanity. It's suffering, it's pathos, it's torment, it's anguish. And that's how I view it. You know, I'm reading now, riveted, riveted every night. It's my treat. After preparing classes, I sit down and I take out the letters of Rosa Luxemburg, uh, the great Rush, the great revolutionist, not Russian. Uh, well, yeah, in part she was. But that's beside the point. Uh, the great revolutionist, and they stir me so much that as I'm reading it. I'm fearing of coming to the end. Oh. I don't want it to end. You know, <laughs> Gloria, her, her commitment, her conviction. Now, she was Jewish. She also was a woman. She also had a physical disability. She also and also and also, and she was utterly brilliant. I mean, that generation of socialists, the beginning of the 20th century, it was the pink. And all of it deeply stirs me, not because of their ethnic identity or their sexual identity, but because of their brilliance, their commitment, their sacrifice. And that to me, even now, to this day, believe it or not, there are two pictures that sit on my bookshelf. One of them you know because you're an economist, a close friend of mine, or I should say mentor, not friend, uh, Paul Sweezy, the Marxist economist. And the other one is Paul Robeson. And till the end of my life, those two pictures will sit there. Just the other day, I know one of the curators at the um, um, uh, Lincoln Center. And I said to her, you know, a, a few months ago, I said, you know what, Paul Robeson's birthday is coming up April 9th. It's his 125th birthday. She said, who's Paul Robeson? And I filled her, she's a very bright woman, but I filled her in, very smart woman. I filled her in, and she organized at Lincoln Center in a smaller room, but still Lincoln Center, a concert for Robeson, Robeson's memory. The performer you might know, his name is Mark Doss, D-O-S-S, an opera singer, African-American. Utterly breathtakingly brilliant. You should, you, he's somebody you should have in your program. I want to ask and, you something. As, and I cried. Okay, part of it's crying for my youth, you know, where Robeson uh, loomed large. But it was so beautiful. And it's brought back so many rich memories. And the richest memory is how much that man sacrificed for his beliefs as he put it before McCarthy, the McCarthy hearing, he said, I will not retreat one thousandth part of one inch. The dignity, the conviction, 
you know, his income in 1949 was $200,000 a year. 1950, after he gave that Paris speech, which I suspect you know about, where he said that black people should not go to war against the Soviet Union, his income plummeted to $6,000 a year. Every concert hall was closed to him. Every meeting house was closed to him. Uh, never complained and never any self-pity. Uh, and he was a crushed man. He was a shattered man by 1962. If you see That's very powerful. Um, car. I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, certainly, Robeson being a Negro, as would have been said in his lifetime, was absolutely fundamental to the uh, uh, power of his per persona and, and his impact upon you. And I can't help but think that the overrepresentation of Jewish people amongst those who are of a cosmopolitan sensibility, who are committed to struggling for justice, uh, et, et cetera, uh, it's, so it can't but be a source of pride. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting that out of this in terms of identity. It, it's not a colorblind, it's not a deracinated, it's not a, you know, but it's a kind of elevated sense where you keep it in proportion, uh, the, the, the kind of, uh, ethnocentric dimension and it's, uh, uh, buttressed by, uh, a kind of humanitarian, uh, universalist kind. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not a philosopher, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting a sense of something very complex on the identity, uh, question with you. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people take Robeson himself. Robeson became a hero of the international working class. Uh, you know, the Welsh miners, uh, a large, uh, and all struggles of working people. They loved, you know, you see them even go to YouTube, watch Robeson speak before workers in Australia. Watch Robeson speak before, work, you know, he went to the construction sites, he went to where the working class was, and in his little autobiography, here I stand, he says, many people wonder, am I identified with the working class? Am I identified with black people, Negro people? And he said, the more conscious I am as a Negro, the more I feel solidarity with the working class of the world. Now, obviously, there's a tension there. Obviously, there's a friction there. And I think in real life, it's hard intellectually to make sense of those kinds of human contradictions. Uh, that's why people often look to try to make sense of those things. They don't look to sociological uh, expositions. They look to novels. How do people in the real world, in the real life, how do they reconcile all this? Because at an intellectual level, it really can't be reconciled. And I think Robson understood that. And so you're right. I am glad that there are a lot of Jews in that struggle. And I do have a certain kind of pride in it. But I also derive a pride from, as Shakespeare said, what a piece of work is men. The kind of hero heroism, dignity, heroism and dignity, people, all people are capable of. That's deeply inspiring. For me as a human being, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's what urges me on. As you know, 
I sent you yesterday a YouTube of these two young black fellows singing. I was deeply moved because it shows me human possibility. Give people a chance. Give them a chance. And I'm not going to go now on a direct digression, but that's why I loathe Amy Wax. Walking into a classroom already on the premise, the assumption that certain people in this class are inferior. That's what fills me with loathing and nausea. Does she have the right to say outside the class what she wants? Fine. I have no problem with that. But you know, because I, you I don't think she thinks that, Norman. I don't, and uh, I don't. I, I don't want to get into an argument with you about I Amy. I agree. I agree. But, you know, my point. I like to see the the people rising above themselves and showing their human capabilities and their capacities, and affirming that yes, uh, humanity is something special. I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. How about we talk about that for a bit? So I have to make the game theorist point. <laughs> Tom Schelling, the great man, late great economist, was a mentor and friend of mine, Nobel laureate, a game theorist. And he would be the first to observe you burn the bridges behind you. And the reason that you burn the bridge is that you commit yourself to not retreat. So the whole metaphor of burning the bridge is predicated up on the insight that if I have my army advancing and you think I might retreat if you counterattack, you might be inclined to counterattack. But if I burn the bridge behind myself and have no place to go, I'm going to fight to the death. And that may be more fighting than you're prepared to take on. So I can win a war against you by burning a bridge, but it's the bridge behind me, not, not the bridge ahead of me. What do you think about that? You're a political scientist. Am I burning bridges behind me or bridges ahead of me? I'm burning bridges when I regard them as an obstacle and impediment uh, to the struggle to make the world a better place, the struggle to use a hackneyed expression, the struggle for the emancipation of humankind. Uh, obviously, that's a tall order, and obviously I'm not equipped to uh, even begin to engage it on the scale that it requires. But each of us can play a role where we see that there are certain obstacles, impediments, uh, and forces, powerful forces, powerful forces, which are creating serious obstacles to the betterment of humankind, then I'm willing to take it on, come what may, whatever the consequences. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Virtually everybody of my generation who I gave to read the manuscript told me, don't publish the book. They hated the book. They hated the book. It was very painful for me, you know, because a lot of the comments were extremely patronizing, condescending, uh, and it, it hurt, I'll be honest with you. But I remember <clears throat> far into the project when I was getting from virtually everyone very... Uh, negative, and I dare say, nasty comments. Uh, I, I wrote to Professor Chomsky, who for a period of life, he was 
the most significant presence in my life for about 35 years. And uh, I was writing him about the book, and he wrote back to me, quote, if you're having any doubts about publishing the book, don't. And when I read that, my heart sunk. Oh. I read that sentence to mean, if you're having any doubts, I'm telling you, don't publish the book. But then the next sentence was, publish the book, which was to say, don't, don't. have doubts. Let me tell people. Let me tell people. My heart palpitates. Oh, your hero was about to have disappointed you, but he came through in the end. Now, I just want people to know who are listening to this. So the the book is, you know, takes on uh, the woke, uh, anti-racist establishment, intellectual establishment, and basically picks it apart piece by piece in a series of chapters about the likes of Ibram X. Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates and Kimberly Crenshaw and Robin DiAngelo and Barack Obama. Uh, And it is, I think, uh, for a progressive, for a man who's a communist, you're a communist, are you not? I mean, isn't that a self-description? I I see no reason to dissociate myself. Indeed, indeed. As long as we have the small, the lower... Who calls for revolution, who uh, uh, mourns the uh, demise of Bernie Sanders as a political phenomenon... Uh, because that was a chance for a vision about American government to really become instantiated and the chance was missed. Uh, it must be painful, the bridge that you're burning with your allies in the anti-racist struggle. Uh, and and uh, you, want, you want to talk about I me? Mean, what drove you to the point that you feel that felt that you had to take these you know, these are people that I criticize on a daily basis. That's, you know, part of my job, but that you had to take them on. Well, I would say there were two things. There was a practical one, which I felt that the, uh, I feel that the identity politics showed its t- true colors during the night 2016 and the 2020 Bernie Sanders presidential runs, where all of the icons, the high priests and priestesses of identity politics uh, were very publicly attacking Bernie Sanders. So you have Ta-Nehisi Coates saying Bernie is weak on the reparations question. You have Angela Davis saying Bernie is weak on the race question. You have uh, Kimberly Crenshaw saying that all oh, these old Jewish schmucks like uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, there has been, the real action is Jeff Bezos and all the corporations who have, ident- I, uh, who have adopted uh, woke culture, the uh, the uh, gay flag, the um, uh, the uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, the Whoopi Goldbergs snarling at uh, Bernie, when are you going to get out of the race? The Joy Reads bringing on body language readers to prove that Bernie is a congenital liar. There was a coalescence among the identity politics uh, leadership to stop Bernie. So it had ceased to be just a kind of preposterous distraction, and it became a real, as I said, an obstacle, an impediment uh, to trying to do something better, <clears throat> radically different to improve the country. I'm a parent, but my children are all grown up. 
In this day and age, I wonder how people raising teenagers amidst all of the noise and all of the dangers in the world, how they do it. It's shocking to me that in 2023, every parent hasn't installed ExpressVPN on their kids' devices. Like, you wouldn't let your kid walk home from school without telling them not to talk to strangers or to get into any windowless van. So why would you let them go online without using ExpressVPN? Every family needs a VPN. You see, every device, phones, computers, tablets, has a unique IP address, which is like an internet phone number, and it reveals personal information about you, like where you live. It's super simple for a stranger online to find your IP address. If you've ever clicked on a sketchy link or opened an email with a bugged image, your IP address could be exposed. Who knows what kind of creeps could physically track your kids down using their IP address. Now, let me tell you why you wanna use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that hides your real IP address and replaces it with a dummy one. It keeps you safe and private. It's so easy to use. All you do is download the ExpressVPN app on your phone or your computer, tap one button to turn it on, and you are protected. Even a 10-year-old can figure it out. And here's the coolest part about ExpressVPN. They let you choose what country you want your IP address to look like it's coming from. This is super useful because services like Netflix and Disney Plus give you different shows depending upon what country you're in. So, secure your family's online activity and unlock tons of new shows by visiting expressvpn.com slash Glenn. Use my link and you can get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash Glenn. expressvpn.com slash Glenn to learn more. So it was 2016 that really put you over the edge. It was, yes, it was that. And also on an intellectual level, uh, I have always believed that you're, uh, I'm an old fashioned Marxist. Uh, I won't call myself a Marxist, but I would say I'm part of the Marxist tradition where your beliefs, your convictions have to be grounded in serious scholarship, serious study, serious investigation, making of compelling arguments, not sloganeering, making of compelling arguments to prove your point. And um, it just became very obvious after my initial impetus, namely what happened during the Bernie campaign, campaigns, that when you read this stuff, it's intellectually completely vacuous. In fact, I dare say without risk of being contradicted if we have a serious conversation, most of it is simply idiotic. I mean, it's moronic, moronic at a very high level, by the way. And so- my This is Crenshaw, Coates, Kennedy, D'Angelo. Yes, and nobody could fault me for just hurling epithets or hurling invective. I devote a a hundred pages uh, to Ibram X. Candy, going through his quote-unquote books, I think they're comics, but that's, that's a separate issue, 
uh, going through his books line by line and trying to demonstrate my point. So it's not just hurling an epithet as in Kennedy, you're a racist, you're not a, you're an anti-racist, you're a non-racist, racist, non-racist, you know, that kind of juvenile uh, hurling of epithets. I, I go at great lengths to document it and also to make the point, which is that there is uh, a great African-American intellectual tradition and uh, it's very serious. It's not just serious, it's of a morally very high caliber. When you read Du Bois, especially his later works, well, not, I won't say especially, uh, like Black Reconstruction, but even the Philadelphia Negro, the level of reflection, of moral reflection, and here I would say especially uh, Black Reconstruction, when he goes over, all, goes uh, on, as it were, tangents, talks about war, talks about death. You know, there's a point where he says, Black people during the Civil War, they had to prove their equality by, with white people by demonstrating they can kill as well. And the boys then says, I think that the Black people who stayed behind to take care of the plantation he said, I think they showed as much moral, um, moral quality as those who killed. You know, <laughs> these kinds of passages, they just leap off the page and you sit and you begin to ponder and to think. I mean, he was not just trying to be uh, an iconoclast. You could see somebody who was steeped in philosophy steeped in history and who was given deep reflection to these questions. And there's another moment, there are many, and my footnotes in that chapter are voluminous because I wanted people to read him, not my second-rate summary. I wanted them to see the prose, as it were, in the flesh. There's another point. He's talking about the latter years of Reconstruction, and he describes in the most gruesome, ghastly detail the lynchings. And after this description, which has to tear your heart out, he says, I think Southern people are as fine a people as any other people in the world. And I looked at that, I paused, and I thought to myself, were my parents capable of saying that about the Germans? And they aren't. They weren't. Am I capable? Were I, were, were I in the midst of it? Would I be capable? No. So this is uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, whom you're discussing here, is uh, Black Reconstruction. Uh, so that's, in the, that's published in the 1930s, isn't it? Uh, you know he wrote that when he was in his late 60s? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm getting ready to say. Uh, and and we're, the reason we're talking about Du Bois is that you're offering him as a counterpoint to the light, uh, you know, paper-thin intellectuality that uh, passes... Uh, for being serious in the uh, anti-racism uh, literature. 
There was a moral grandeur to Du Bois. And then you juxtapose it with this comic book version of history where there are superheroes and supervillains, these absurdities where Doug Frederick Douglass is cast as a racist. This is Kendi. Yeah, Supermax Kendi. Douglass is a racist. Richard Wright is a racist. Phyllis Wheatley is a racist. And the only non-racists are Eldridge Cleaver, Zora Neale Hurston, and Angela Davis. Is this history? Is this serious? It's such woke garbage. It's a disgrace to the memory of those who labored hard. Amen, amen. Out of the limelight, remember, the boys could not get a job in a white university. And quietly in his... That's because Booker T. Washington cut him off at the knees, isn't it? Well, I, I, I don't, you know, I've read uh, David Levering Lewis's just utterly brilliant yeah. uh, biography of... of du Bois. Uh, that's, that, too, that too is a breathtaking achievement. Not on the Boisian level, but certainly it's certainly deserving of, uh, of a high regard. But the point is that he labored at Atlanta University, uh, one of the historically black colleges and universities. He would organize every year these conferences where, because he had connections with the white academics at places like Harvard, where he studied, he would bring them over in order to attend the conference, pass judgment on the scholarly quality of the students he was nurturing. But this was, you know, he had to beg and plead, really, he had to beg and plead to get any dollar in funding. He would, you know, create, he would make proposals which were very sophisticated, required a significant amount of financial subsidy to carry out and he, you know, he begged and pleaded. Well, the boys would never beg, but you get that he, he had to try very hard to get support for it and produced really enduring works. And then you have a candy. He gets, my understanding is, at Boston University, he gets a half million dollars for being the director of the quote-unquote Center for Anti-Racism Studies. He probably gets roughly the equivalent, another half million, for being the Andrew Mellon Professor of the Humanities uh, at Boston University. These are my, that's the second one's my speculation, the first one I know. Then he goes, speaks the other day at Camden, literally the other day, we're talking about last week, at Camden University branch of Rutgers. He gets $30,000 for one and a half hours, one and a, and a first class Ticket, airline ticket, $30,000. Well, this is a scam. It's a very lucrative scam, but it's a scam. It's a scam because, A, it has no scholarly content. It has no intellectual content. It's a scam because it's highly remunerated intellectual vacuity. And it's a scam because rich white folks use the woke people 
as a protective cover because they get to say, look how radical we are. Look how cutting edge we are. We invited Ibram X. Kendi, Angela Davis to Martha's Vineyard in the case of Martha, uh, Angela Davis to lecture on prison abolitionism. We get the free song of being down with the hood and paying no price at all. No price at all. Listen, you're old enough to remember, if I can say so, you're old enough to remember when Leonard Bernstein invited the Black Panthers to his uh, apartment for that soiree. And then Tom Wolfe. Radical chic. <laughs> Mau Mau and the flat catchers. Yeah. And he wrote that. Uh, I'll give this much to Leonard Bernstein. We can argue about it. Disagree. It took a certain amount of courage to invite the Black Panthers because they were being hounded by the government. Now, you may think they were justifiably hounded. I don't, but we could disagree about that. But it took a certain amount of courage. What courage does it take to invite Ibram X. Head Candy to Martha's Vineyard? What courage does it take Angela Dav- to invite Angela Davis? There is no price at all to be paid for this wokeness. That's why I say it's a triple scam. It's a scam because it's intellectually worthless. It's a scam because it's a very highly remunerated scam. And it's a scam by white folks who want to pretend how cutting edge and radical they are by having their cake and eating it, not paying any price whatsoever for their liberal wokeness. Okay, now... Angela Davis is this iconic figure in uh, radical circles. Uh, what's wrong with her and her case for prison abolition? And I don't support prison abolition. I'm on the record to that effect. But you want to spell it out? Ibram X. Kendi, I don't think is worth discuss- discussing. I mean, I, I don't understand why. Why is there an endowed center at Boston University I don't, I, don't, I don't get it at all. I, I mean, I really don't. Because Jack Dorsey wants to cover himself. So he yeah. gave $1 million to Ibram X. Kennedy. But wait, when you read Ibram X. Ibram X. Kennedy, he says how proud he is of his black roots and how proud he is of his black space and how proud he is of this black and that black and that black. Well, why didn't he take his $10 million and go to an HBCU? Why did he go to Boston University? He had the option. He said he's so proud. He attended an HBCU, Florida, uh, Florida. Uh, I can't remember Florida. One of the uh, Florida institutions. Why didn't you take your money there if you're so proud? And you say white people can't understand you. You say that black people have their own mental processes. Black people have their own language, ebonics, and so that's what he says. Fine. And why are you going to a university which, according to you, they can't possibly understand the word you're saying? You'll say that black people think differently than white people. Well, that's like me speaking to a Chinese audience that doesn't know any English. Why would I want to establish my anti-racist center in a place where they don't understand the word I'm saying? Then he says education is pointless because white people gain from white privilege and all white people gain from the oppression of black people. Fine, there's an argument there. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to parse it. But then why are you talking to white people in the first place? 
You said education can't enlighten them. It's not possible because their material interest is to preserve the oppression of black people. Then why are you talking to them? Every time I see you, your audiences are 99% white. Then why are you talking to them in the first place? That doesn't make any sense. None of it makes any sense. Now, to get back to the question of Angela Davis. First of all, two things. Angela Davis was a hero, a heroine of mine uh, when I was growing up. I mean, to the point of fanaticism, I freely admit to that. Everything was Angela Davis, Angela Davis. I, I, gave, I sent out Angela Davis Christmas cards in 1970 uh, when uh, she was in prison. Yes, I admit to it. It used to drive my late mother crazy. Stop with the Angela Davis. And then when I stopped with the Angela Davis and moved on to some other fixation, some other obsession, she would always say, Angela Davis? (laughs) (laughs) Call you back to your roots. (laughs) And number two, say what you want about her. She was very impressive academically. She was very impressive. She studied at the Sorbonne. Then she studied under Adorno in Germany. She was teaching Kant at age 22 in the UCLA philosophy department. That's no small achievement. If you've sat down and tried to read the Critique of Pure Reason. And I the, have. I yes. have. So we're talking about somebody who, by any reckoning, is a very serious uh, intellectual. Right. So, and... And she, show, she showed, I think there's, a, there's something to be acknowledged, she showed raw physical courage, willing to pay the price of her convictions, and spending not an ins- a trivial amount of time in jail, which couldn't have been a very happy experience, the women's house of detention. All of that, I, I not only concede to Angela, I acknowledge it with very high regard. But what's become of Angela is another story altogether. This kind of, uh, she's become an icon of wokeness. There's one video on YouTube of her speaking at the University of South Carolina. And she's introduced by this Southern belle with a huge shock of blonde hair who turns out to be the second richest woman billionaire in South, in South Carolina. And this woman, you could watch it. I could see you have a bemused look in your face. You <laughs> I'm going to check it out, believe me. Yeah, right. <laughs> and this woman is going on and on, half, half jokingly, about how much she and Angela have in common. Now, I'll tell you, if George Soros gave me, <laughs> gave me such a tribute, I would seriously reflect on, quote, what have I become? <laughs> so, um, and now, we get to this prison abolitionism, okay? That is the most a political, a political slogan on God's earth. What does it have to do with anything in the real world? It's as if, it's as if 
So our country is facing an economic crisis. And we could disagree, in my opinion, it has reached a kind of impasse which it has not been able to successfully break out of. The impasse begins roughly in the 1980s. Uh, there's been that long-term stagnation in workers' wages. And the promise of any economic system, as you know, is the tacit promise of any economic system is that each new generation will, uh, will experience a better life than the generation that preceded it. That's the, so, you, so to speak, the social contract between the ruling elite and the rest. And since the 1980s, there's been this long-term stagnation. So we've reached a kind of impasse. How you break out of it, I haven't a clue. What's causing it, I haven't a clue. I'm not an expert in those areas, uh, those scholarly disciplines. But let's say you're, as I am, a communist with a small c. And I came along and I said, I have the solution. I have the answer. It's right there in Marx. All you have to do is abolish money. Okay? Now, it's true. Marx says in a communist society, we're going to abolish money. Is that... That's a not a political program. Exactly. And neither is prison abolition and neither is defund the police. And that's why she gets invited to Martha's Vineyard. I understand. That's why she gets invited. Watch Amy Gutman. I knew Amy Gutman at uh, Princeton. She was this milquetoast liberal. She was as intellectually exciting as watching paint dry and grass grow. And uh, then she was, uh, until a couple of years ago, now she's the U.S. ambassador to Germany. But Amy Gutman was the president of the University of Pennsylvania. And watch it on the YouTube. She is so exhilarated, so excited about introducing Angela Davis and Angela Davis's uh, comrade, Gina Den. A fellow philosopher. Speak on prison abolitionism. Why is she so excited about that? You know why? Because it has nothing to do with anything and you get to call yourself radical woke and cutting edge. That's why they get so excited. And you know what's the thing that troubles me the most? Honestly, as I said, Angela's a very smart, very smart woman. And she has a rich political history. You may not agree with her history, but you will agree there is a rich political history there. She doesn't know what's going on. She's oblivious <laughs> to what's going on, how she's being used, how she's letting herself be used. That saddens me. Maybe let me, let, she, maybe let me she ask you. <laughs> I want to ask you, you know, you're on a roll here. Uh, Cornell West, Henry Louis Gates Jr., Adolph Reed. Uh, are, what do you think? I mean, there are other African-American intellectuals besides Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, and some of these are serious. And Angela Davis, some of these I think have to be regarded as serious people within their, within their particular lane. So, uh, look, I went, I was in Princeton the same years as Cornell. I only met him once. He wasn't the figure he became. Uh, but he, no question, look, Cornell got his philosophy degree from Harvard in three years. And as Cornell likes to say, those were the golden years of the uh, philosophy department at Harvard. Quine, Rawls, he was among the best. And to have gotten his philosophy degree in three years, well, that's a real achievement. 
So, and I listened to Cornell, I'll tell you, uh, his range is quite impressive. I won't say spectacular, but very impressive. No, spectacular, I'm going to say for Noam Chomsky, because I've known the smartest of the smart. You know? Cornell knows literature, he knows history, he knows philosophy, etc. And you know what? It's not, you know, the expression a mile wide but an inch deep? He is not an inch deep. Right. Because there are few areas where he speaks. There are a few areas where he speaks, and I am knowledgeable. And I'm always kind of shocked. He gets the details right. He gets the details right. So it's not what, you know, the expression, a quick read. He's not just a quick read. He knows the depth. So I don't like, and I'll be honest with you, I don't like what became of him. Because I think, and I've never said this to Cornell, and I know it's going to burn another bridge. And I'm on, I don't say that gleefully, but I, I, I wouldn't, I'll say it honestly. I think Cornell's biggest, uh, his, the tragedy of Cornell West was he was discovered too early. They were looking for some black, flashy person who's very smart. And already by 19, uh, by, already in his 40s, he was a kind of international superstar. Race and, Matters, the book, uh, 1992, if right, I'm not mistaken. Right. But even before, you know, Race Matters was the climax of that period in his life. And I don't think it's a good thing to be discovered too early because he spent too much time attending conferences and jet threading and too little time doing serious work. I think it was to the boys' benefit, though he was so morally serious, he probably would not have been corrupted. But I think it was to his benefit that he ended up at Atlanta University and not at one of the Ivy Leagues. Uh, the interesting thing to me about Cornell is, as you know, he worked very hard for, uh, for Obama. He gave, I can't remember if it was 40 or 60 uh, uh, speeches uh, trying to get Obama. And, um, well, you know, the whole contretemps that Obama did invite him to the... To the inauguration, et cetera. Uh, but the thing that's striking to me is... But, but, but excuse me, Cornell subsequently developed a very... A uh, powerful critique of Obama, drone strike president, Obama, Wall Street president, et cetera. Yes, I, I okay. Let me just say, I'm going to, I'll get to that right now. It was very striking to me that Obama found a place for the likes of Al Sharpton. <laughs> no, it's very revealing. Yes, you know, it is. It is. I agree. David Axelrod's memoir, if you read Valerie Jarrett's memoir, they're, have... all, they're all singing the praises of Al Sharpton. But Cornell couldn't find a place in his administration for Cornell West. That, to me, says a lot. It says so many things. As to what you call a critique, um, I felt that... And still feel that Cornell had the mental power to do more than verbally denounce Obama for this and that. He could have sat down and, like Black Reconstruction, yeah. we could have produced something of real intellectual weight and heft that would have made an enduring contribution. And I think it's regrettable 
because, and if Cornell is listening, and I suspect at some point he will hear this, because he was capable of so much, I think it's regrettable that he spent so much of his valuable time giving these kinds of public speeches and addresses that never went beyond quoting Vico here and quoting some other philosopher there rather than producing yeah, I get it. those works. Now, a couple of things. I can imagine Cornell saying, yeah, man, I, you know, I, I made the choices that I made. I'm living the life that I'm he living. That. He said you that. know, it's about the music. It's about, it's about the soulful yeah. connections with people. It's about inspiring a preacher as much as I am, a, you know. Yeah. He said that. He said, I right. made a choice not to become a strictly narrow academic. I'm just saying for myself. Yeah. I went but, to and also, that's Larry Summers' argument, isn't it? Isn't that Larry Summers? I, I didn't go for Larry Summers' argument for a very simple reason. Because of the egregious double standard. You want to sit down and... You oh, want... Alan Dershowitz is going to come up again. <laughs> You just stole my thunder. Can you show me one serious academic book or article, book or article, that Alan Dershowitz has written in the last 40 years? Okay. I've read everything he's written. Everything. Actually, I once met him a few uh, about five years ago. I met him in an Indian restaurant uh, in the Upper East Side. A friend was taking me up. And I said to him, we were sitting at the same table. <laughs> Long story, not worth going into. And I said to him, you know, Professor Dershowitz, I know you started out impressive guy. No question in my mind. You grew up in Borough Park in Brooklyn, very humble, uh, very humble origins. I lived in Borough Park. And actually not far from where he grew up, though we're different, separated by about a decade. But still, Borough Park was Borough Park. And you went to Brooklyn College. A modest, humble city university. You then were catapulted to Yale University Law School, and you graduate first in your class. I am not going to dismiss the significance of that achievement, of that attainment. And I have to believe that some intelligence of some kind was behind that achievement. I said, but you know, Professor Dershowitz, I had this, by the way, on tape, if anyone wants to hear the actual talk. I said, you know, Professor Dershowitz, I've, written, I've, I've read everything you've written in the last 40 years. I said, it's completely worthless. <laughs> and, and it was funny, it was interesting, his reaction, because he has more self-awareness than you would have you uh, presupposed. He went with his shoulders like this, like, yeah, I guess. You caught me. <laughs> you caught me. You know, paradigmatic Jewish gesture to go like that. You caught me. He wasn't even about to defend his output properly who he knew had actually read it. And so for Summers to come down to Cornell's office. And not come down to Dershowitz's office. Sorry, okay. yeah. you lose me. All right. It's a strong argument. <laughs> it's a strong argument. <laughs> Let's talk about Cozy Earth 
luxury bedding, and loungewear. It offers the softest, most luxurious, and responsibly sourced product of its kind in the world. I know what I'm talking about. I've been trying sleeping on cozy earth luxury bedding, and it is a delightful experience. I'm here to rave about cozy earth and their incredibly soft and luxurious bedding. And I'm not alone. There are literally thousands of customers who have left five-star reviews on their website. Case in point is Melissa, who says, sleeping on these sheets has changed my life. They are so smooth and soft, I sleep like a baby. It is priceless to be able to wake up refreshed and not dripping in sweat. I recommend them, says Melissa, to all my friends and family, worth every penny. And I couldn't agree more. Cozy Earth is the brand that has been featured on Oprah's favorite things for five years in a row. The products are made from responsibly sourced bamboo materials. Cozy Earth offers a hundred night sleep trial. Sleep on it, wash it, try it out. And if you're not completely in love, just in the back for a full refund. Be sure to check out their 10 year warranty too. And right now, you can save up to 35% on Cozy Earth. Go to CozyEarth.com forward slash Glenn. And be sure to enter my promo code, Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to save up to 35%. All backed by a 100-night trial. That's CozyEarth.com forward slash Glenn. Uh, Obama. So I told you this story in private correspondence. I'll repeat it here. The campaign of 2008, Obama is selling the country on hope and change. And we are the ones we've been waiting for. <laughs> as vapid as you could possibly imagine in retrospect, but it actually persuaded a majority of voters to cast ballots on his behalf in 2008. And, uh, but so he's, he's uh, on the rise. Uh, but not yet nominated. And uh, a black, brilliant undergraduate student of mine at Brown, who I'll not name, comes to me and he whispers, he says, is Obama a pimp? And I say, what? What? He says, because he's mind-fucking all of us. (laughs) And I said, hmm, that's something to think about. You said it, I didn't, but that's something to think about. And I got, I was reminded of this kid when I read your chapter, your long chapter on Obama. So Obama is now St. Obama. Uh, He and Michelle are billionaires or as close to that as you could imagine. They own, et cetera. They do whatever they want to do with, you know, they're these figures. And here you are, Mr. Contrarian out there saying, saying what? What are you saying about Obama? Well, I say many things, as you say, that was 150 pages uh, on Obama. Um, The first thing is to say what you just said, as having been acknowledged by Obama, when you read his memoir, he says in the 2008 election, I pulled off, and I'm using his expression, a neat trick. (laughs) (laughs) That's the, that's the phrase he uses, a neat trick. 
And the neat trick was, I stood for absolutely nothing. And I managed to get myself elected, obviously by virtue of being a black man. And then he called himself in that same memoir. I mean, first of all, it takes a certain amount of lack of self-aware brazenness to boast, to boast about the fact that you got elected standing for nothing. You know, it's as if John F. Kennedy were to write his memoir, I got elected because of my thick shock of hair. <laughs> Which, he, by the way, it's reported he combed 40 times a day, but we'll leave that aside. Uh, to boast about that. And then at another point, he calls himself, Obama calls himself the ultimate Rorschach test. Everybody saw what they wanted to see in me. I stood for nothing. And that, to me, there was an element of, as I say, lack of self-aware cynicism. That was really quite striking. Let, let, let me beg to differ just a minute. He, he stood for, I am the first black president. That's not nothing. That's correct. That's correct. What he did was... He turned the presidential election into a morality tale in which each of the electors was called upon to a referendum in which each of the electors was called upon to make a, uh, uh, a, uh, a moral test. If you are a good person, you vote for Obama. If you are a bad person, you don't vote for Obama. So instead of a presidential election being a referendum on the candidates, is he a good candidate or is he a bad candidate? It became a referendum on the electorate. Are you a good people or are you... Of bad people. Let me and observe. Let me observe that that would only be possible with the ratification of Obama's move. I am the emblem of a virtuous, good person's vote. The ratification of that by black people, who might have said, "You're a carpetbagger. Uh, you don't know anything about our experience, really. This is all symbolism." You and Martin Luther King don't deserve to be in the same frame. Uh, you're, you know, uh, what do you mean taking my noble history of centuries of oppression in this country and appropriating it to your own personal ambition with smoke and mirrors? But we didn't say that. So, you yeah, know. I, 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 do, I, do I do regard it as a regrettable fact that because of a kind of racial, if I can use the term, defensiveness, that even to this day, to this day, it's still impossible for a non-white person to say anything critical of Obama without then the thought passing through the black person that he or she must be a racist. 
And that, as I say, that defensiveness endures to this day. And I, I can understand it. Hey, you know, there, uh, I don't want the, um, the great Roman philosopher Terence, he famously said in the Latin, I'll give it in the English version, nothing human is alien to me, which is to say, don't put me on the pedestal. All of the flaws that all of us carry with us, I carry with me. So I will acknowledge that a lot of times when a non-Jewish person gets too carried away in his or her loathing of Israel. <laughs> are they really indignant about, yes, Israel's policies are murderous, bestial, uh, so forth. But are, is that their only animating sentiment, the injustice? And so I can understand the African-American defensiveness when it comes to uh, criticizing publicly Barack Obama. I get it. And I will say, I recognize I was taking a chance with that chapter. I recognize that. And I said to myself, you know, Norm, a large part of your career was saying a lot of things that Jews did not want to hear. And I commanded a certain amount of immunity because I myself was Jewish and I had, as it were, the Holocaust credentials. And I went after all the icons of the Jewish community and the Holocaust memory, like Elie Wiesel and others in my, for example, the Holocaust industry. And so I said to myself, you know, Norm, you earned the right to write what you take to be the truth about this whole, uh, this whole mystique that shrouds Obama. And the chapter is evenly ba balanced between Obama himself, as to quote David Garrow, an empty vessel, and all the woke people, the Axelrods, the David Axelrods, the David Pluffs, the uh, Lawrence Tribes, the Martha Minnows, all of those white woke liberals, the Ben Rhodes, all of those white woke liberals who created Obama in the most cynical, disingenuous way, with people like Lawrence Tribe saying, oh, he's the most brilliant student I've had in 40 years. He knows particle physics. He knows, I'm not joking. He knows relativity. He knows quantum, quantum physics. Now you, Glenn Lowry, you, Glenn Lowry, went to MIT. Lawrence Tribe went to Harvard at age 16 and got his degree in mathematics, summa cum laude. Okay? I hear you, man. And he knows math. You know math. Right. Obama never took a math course 
And you couldn't find you couldn't find this transcript if you went looking for it. All right. But let's leave aside the transcript. We know the courses he took. Yeah. He never took a math course. The closest he took to a science course was a course at Columbia called Physics for Poets. You get me? You yeah, understand I do. that kind of course. Right. <laughs> a flaky a course where you can pass your science requirement. Physics for poets. Now, is it credible? No, is it's it not. Possible. I put that quote, I put that question to Brianna Joy Gray, who's a very smart young woman. She is. And she studied as an undergraduate at Harvard. She double majored in the history of art and the history of science. And she said, I took a good half of my courses in the hard sciences. And I asked Brianna, do you think Obama knows relativity? Now, you know what it means, Glenn, to know relativity? I'll tell you what it means. I was once in a car ride with Professor Chomsky, and we were making small talk, not really talk. I just ask questions, he gives answers. You know, it was like the kid show, Ask Mr. Wizard. I was always asking, well, one day I'm making, you know, I said, you know, Professor, uh, I ask him, um, what do you think about, Obama? What do you think about uh, Einstein's uh, theory of relativity? Is it all that it's said to be, or is there a certain element of, I can use the crude expression, hype to it? And uh, 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 Professor Chomsky turned to me and he said, Norman, first of all, only a handful of people in the world understand the theory of relativity. Only a handful of people understand it. But now to read Lawrence Tribe and to read David Remnick in his hagiographic biography of Obama, Obama understood relativity. You know, that was the idiotic white liberal yeah. wokeness to make these utterly preposterous claims. And as I said, Rihanna Joy Gray, to her credit, because she's serious, she said, of course, he didn't understand relativity. You know, it's a, a completely incredible, preposterous, yeah. ridiculous claim. But the, the, the uh, encomia, this incessant, everyone's saying, he's brilliant, he's brilliant, he's brilliant, he's brilliant. Fine. So I sit down, where is the evidence? He went to law school. He was the editor of um, Harvard Law Review. He wrote one six-page comment on abortion. One six-page comment. That is his complete, his complete, total, exhaustive scholarly production. He was up, as you know, they, they were wooing him at University of Chicago to be at the, to stay at the law school, to give him a tenured position. They were offering him a tenured position when his total scholarly output was one six-page comment in Harvard Law Review. That's it. Now, as you know, Glenn, you're an academic. Maybe the standard is wrong, but you recognize as an academic that the standard typically used to judge somebody's academic brilliance is scholarly production. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, yeah. let me just interject. I mean, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying here, Norman, but I just want to say this. So there's such a thing as a professor of practice at a professional school like a law school, a school of public policy. You could have somebody get a tenured appointment based upon 
the value in your pedagogic mission of teaching your students of having real world experience and, you know, mastery over some domain of, of public policy or public action. And I, I'm not saying Obama met that desiderata. I'm saying in principle, you don't have to have books and everything to get tenure in an academic department. If you're in the presidential administration, you, you can get a job based on your experiences. Yeah, that's like, what I'm saying. Yes. Well, what was Obama's experience? He was a community organizer for two and a half years. <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah, and elected to the state legislature. Well, well, the state legislature, you know, the Chicago state, uh, uh, the Illinois no, state. No, I know about that election. <laughs> I know how he disqualified the incumbent by because the signatures on the ballot qualification refer referenda were not all kosher, and uh, he, he was able to walk into that seat basically without opposition. And if you read his descriptions of that period in his life, he seems to have spent a lot of time playing cards, which is understandable in the Illinois State uh, Legislative House. And uh, he put forth some bills, but people who were activists said he never followed through on the bills. He never did anything with those bills. There was no active, engaged, uh, active, engaged um, involvement in politics because Obama's a completely apolitical uh, creature. He has no interest in politics whatsoever. That's uh, uh, if you compare him, it was very striking to me. I sat down. I was curious. I have in front of me Obama's memoir. Around uh, it's half the memoir. Uh, this is um, uh, he. Uh, it's seven hundred pages. And I sat down. I was curious. I I read through Bill Clinton's memoir. I read through Jimmy Carter's memoir. And you could see in both of their memoirs, say what you want about them, they were deeply engaged in politics. As you know, with Clinton, he's uh, known for that phenomenal memory for public policy, and he loves the political, I don't want to call it game, he loves the political process. And Carter was breathtaking. I think Carter is so totally underrated. His mastery, I've read through those presidential papers, his mastery of detail was utterly mesmerizing, mesmerizing. You see the, no, the, uh, um, the briefs that he's given and his marginal comments, pretty, pretty impressive. And it was interesting as you know, Larry Summers was a key figure in both the Clinton and in the, in the Obama administrations. And at one point, he's asked to compare the two, Clinton and Obama. I quoted at length in the book about Obama, he said, Obama was always punctual for meetings, 10 a.m., it's 10 a.m., and Obama, he always read the brief that was sent to him, you know, like a two or three page brief that was sent to him. And then he comes to Clinton, and you see he's trying to effect a balance between the two, because Larry Summers knows where power is, 
and you don't want to alienate any of the precincts of power because you're Larry Summers. But he starts talking about, he starts off by saying, oh, Clinton, he never came to meetings on time. And then he said, he didn't read the, the briefs, but then he said, he would take the brief and he would just turn the pages, like 11 pages, and suck the whole thing up in like two minutes. <laughs> and then he said, Clinton would spend a lot of time in the presidential library and he would come across these abstruse policy statements and sit down and then in a very informed way after reading them, recommending to Summers, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? And you could see a very, as you know with Clinton, I didn't like the guy. I didn't like Carter during his years. But you've got to acknowledge, as I've done throughout this interview, I acknowledge Dershowitz's uh, substantial intellectual achievement as a young man. Uh, I acknowledge Angela, even though I don't like what she has become. And I will acknowledge Clinton and Carter. But you find nothing of that sort in Obama. Obama had no interest whatsoever, zero, no interest whatsoever in politics. He thought, because he attended Harvard Law School, that as long as you surround yourself, as Cornel West said, as long as you surround yourself with white Ivy League, and I'm calling Cornel West now so you don't get in my case, Jewish, because he thought Jews were you know, out of this world, Obama. So, so long as you surround yourself with these people, all he, all Obama had to do was give speeches. That was his métier, to give the speech. And everything else would be done by these Ivy League wunderkinds around him. So he didn't see himself as making significant uh, uh, informed decisions. He made a couple which I think were consequential. I will agree on that. Uh, the decision not to go to war with Syria. I think that was a consequential decision, and frankly, a decision I support. He did it, of course, because he didn't want to mess up his record. He wanted to have a nice... Uh, he knew that if he got to war with Syria, it may end up like Bush in Iraq. And oh my God, it, you know, that he's a, a super... You know, here, oh, um, Obama is a stupefying narcissist. And he's always looking back at how history will look at him. And so he didn't do that. But I'm glad. And it was a consequential decision. But in general, if you read the memoirs, there's one very funny scene in David Axelrod's um, memoir. He says, Obama has to make this very consequential economic decision. And he assembles his advisors, namely Larry Summers, Timothy Geithner, and the woman always her name always eludes me, the, the third main, main advi advisor, a woman, um, he assembles them. They're quarreling about how to solve this policy issue. And Obama says, look, I have to get a haircut. 
And by the time, no, Axelrod describes it. When I get back from my haircut, you, you guys have this figure now. <laughs> and I Axelrod describes how they, came, they reached a consensus. Well, what do you expect, uh, Glenn? You are a trained economist, okay? And you have rich experience. Do you think Obama had the qualifications to make economic decisions of that magnitude and complexity? A large part of economics is mathematical and not to have any knowledge of math. He describes the scene where just at the point of transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, they have to make a decision on what to do with the banks. And Paulson, I think it was Paulson who was, um, you can correct me, but it was Paulson who was Bush's advisor, gives his opinion. And there's a meeting with the potential uh, presidential uh, successors. So it's Obama and okay. McCain. Obama sits down with three leading lights of our economy. Again, the names slip my mind. My memory is going for names. So I have a decent memory still, but for names. So he sits down with three, three advisors for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And he then says, I now master the details of this question. And when I went into the meeting, it was so embarrassing how little McCain knew as compared to me. Now, do you believe, Glenn, that in 30 minutes, you can master the essentials of the question of the banks? No. What yeah. you can master is the is the script that you are provided by the people who actually know what's going on. Exactly, that's all he did. You can learn your lines, and that's why he said he saw his role as being the speechmaker or learning the lines, and he loved it. He loved, you know, the limelight, the applause, and uh, that was. Uh, now you could say, fair enough, because I don't want to be accused. You could say. Yeah, well, what about Bush? I said, fine, I agree. Bush yeah. didn't do anything. He didn't. He left everything to Cheney and Rumsfeld. And Cheney, Cheney and Rumsfeld, you know, they were involved in politics. I think you'd be surprised. They started during Nixon. I saw the movie, man. I, I saw the movie. I didn't see the movie, but I've, I've studied them. I've read their memoirs. So every bone in their body... I mean, this Cheney's having one heart attack after another heart attack after another heart. You can't stop him. He's going to intervene in every debate, and he's going to give his point of view. And while he can. <laughs> well, while he can, and probably after he can, you know, from his grave. So I agree. Bush didn't do anything. It was all Rumsfeld and Cheney, and Rumsfeld and Cheney. They cared about the power. They didn't care about the fame. No, I, I think the critique would not be look at Bush. I think the critique would be no president knows mathematics well enough. Maybe oh. Jimmy Carter's an exception to follow the technical analysis behind economic prescription. I, I, they rely on experts. And the question is, do they have the wisdom to balance all of the incommensurable competing 
values and whatnot in making a statesmanlike uh, administrative uh, decision. Excellently put. You're right. Excellently put. The problem I have is nobody praised Bush as being brilliant. Nobody claimed Bush knew relativity and particle physics. And number two, yeah, well, you're laughing. I I am. That's what Mr. Walt David Remnick wrote in his book, The Bridge. But the other point is, Glenn, and I'm glad, as I said in our email, I wanted a fruitful exchange. And that's why I'm glad you asked that question. You take the case of Clinton, okay? Clinton started out in politics. Do you know when? He was in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff. Fulbright. Under Fulbright. These are people with rich histories, deep immersion in politics, so that they had the experience, not necessarily the wisdom, but the experience to do exactly what you say. You take the advice, you weigh, you balance, you look at it from this angle, you look at it from that angle. What did Obama have? He had a couple of seven years in the state Senate of Illinois, probably the most corrupt state Senate in in the country, aside from maybe Alabama. And he had one year in the Senate. There was no experience. There was no knowledge of politics. He was used because at the particular moment in history, the disaster of the the Bush administration, both Iraq and the crashing of the economy, the country was ready for what was perceived to be a radical change. And what seemed to be, given our country's history, what could be, at least on the surface, a more radical break with that misbegotten past of Bush and Cheney than to elect a black man? Okay. People like Axelrod and Plouffe, David Plouffe, they exploited the hopes, the expectations that not only would we get a black man, but everything that was implied by getting a black man, a radical change in our society, a radical material concrete break, rupture with the past. And that was all a scam. If you read Axelrod, he's very clear. He says, our first items on the agenda were to cut Medicare, cut Social Security. That was what they came in with. Let let, let me interrupt, Norm, because we're 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 drifting on here a little bit. And I want to get you to respond to um, what I think is a core issue for you in your engagement, critical engagement with identity politics, which is that it's the enemy of real progressive politics. That uh, the uh, Jim Clyburn carrying the South Carolina Democratic primary in 2024, Biden win. Bernie Sanders had a real chance of of beating him, uh, is a catastrophe, uh, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, of uh, historical opportunity missed. Uh, And uh, the fact of it was abetted by this 
almost automata-like following of Black voters in that particular constituency of the symbolic politics of a civil rights movement that's no longer really historically relevant or whatever. But, the you know, you got the Democratic Party uh, appealing to uh, Black voters based upon uh, identity uh, dimensions and uh, so on. Anyway, let me not ramble. I'm asking you to engage the question of what's wrong with identity politics from a progressive point of view and uh, maybe using the experience of Bernie as a case in point. Your, your uh, question entails two parts. The one is the specific details of what happened in South Carolina. Yep. The second is the general question of, uh, to quote you, what's wrong with identity politics in general? Let me just, uh, because I know you're going to be pressed for time, I'm going to try to engage those two questions succinctly um, because uh, of time constraints. Thank you. On the specific question of South Carolina, it's often forgotten how close Bernie came to winning. And by the time of South Carolina, you remember people like Chris Matthews or James Carville, they were having meltdowns on air. They were, you remember Chris Matthews saying that if Bernie's elected, we're all going to be lined up and shot down in Central Park. And James Carville just ha having these kinds of uh, connections over the prospect of Bernie winning. So it was very close. If you look at the poll data for the last week before the primary, the last week before the primary, some polls showed Bernie winning. Some polls showed Bernie winning. What happened? Well, the screws were turned on Jim Clyburn. Uh, we're calling you in uh, 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 to do your job. And uh, he then did what he said he wouldn't do. Up until that last week, he said, I'm not going to endorse a candidate. And then he endorsed Biden. 60% of the African-Americans, according to exit polls, were significantly influenced by the Jim Clyburn uh, endorsement. And then, as you know, then Obama came in, and he called Buttigieg, and probably Amy Klobuchar. If you want any future of the Democratic Party, you have to drop out. Uh, Buttigieg did his uh, called upon to do, and he was rewarded, you know, it's uh, the Department of Transportation uh, cabinet position. Um, so, how do we assess identity politics in that context? It is an interesting question. As you know, a lot of people say, well, black uh, uh, African-Americans in the South, they tend to be defensive and they tend to be cautious and they choose moderate candidates because they're afraid that if they don't vote for the moderate, a far right-wing person will come in. That's not really an accurate depiction of what happened because you know and I know that if Jim Clyburn and Obama had um, endorsed Bernie, that African-American electorate, which we are told are defensive and cautious, he would have voted for Bernie. Yeah. There's no question about that. So that explanation, to me, is not tenable, that it was just the defensiveness and cautiousness of African-Americans in the South. So what happened? 
Here I, I, I enter on speculative territory, I admit, and there's nothing worse in politics than psychoanalyzing. But I found it was interesting what uh, Clyburn said. He said, I'm endorsing Bernie. Actually, I'm endorsing Biden because Biden is among us. Biden likes us. Biden feels comfortable among us. And it was, wow. this, it was this kind of need for approbation by white people, approval by them, that uh, Clyburn used to justify his endorsement. And it struck me, and here a lot of people who read the manuscript and draft, including especially African-Americans, didn't like what I had to say. And um, I said, when you read Frederick Douglass, he had three autobiographies, as you know. And the third autobiography, there are basically three high points in uh, climactic moments in Douglass's life. Number one, runs away from slavery. Number two meets Lincoln. And number three is when he meets his former slave master. And it's a very dramatic scene in the book. His slave master is on his deathbed, and Douglas comes to see him. And Douglas describes how the slave master said to him, the slave master said, you did the right thing by running away. You were too good for slavery. Wow. And that struck me because Douglas was very proud of that remark, even though, as you immediately intuit, it was a very backhanded compliment because it was saying that every other black person deserves slavery. But he needed... And here I admit I'm psychoanalyzing, and you should never do that. But it seems he needed the, uh, the approbation of his of slave his former slave master. Right. Even though his achievements by this point in his life were stupendous. I mean, you read his speeches, they are a wonder to behold. They are a wonder to behold those speeches that you say, and what did he have? He had Shakespeare, he had the Bible, he had Dickens. Isn't that what you and you Burns said? and Robert Burns and uh, Burns, Shakespeare, Burns. the Bible, Burns, and um, Dickens. Now, uh, uh, but the, the writing, I mean, self taught, self taught, self taught, and now with a lot of time in his hands because he's an abolitionist and he's speaking everywhere and he's always on the road. And this yeah. is before planes and before uh, fast travel. Um, so, and despite his stupendous achievements, judging from that third autobiography, and you can judge, uh, you know, you read for yourself that chapter where he describes meeting his uh, slave He needed approbation. And that was the same thing I thought with the Jim uh, Clyburn endorsement of Biden. That the voters needed approbation? Well, he knew that would resonate with black people yeah. when he yeah. saw it. That's what I mean. He says, he understands us. He's among us, you know? And that was, that was the point 
that was supposed to resonate. Of course, Clyburn did it because the screws were turned on him by the Democratic leadership. But the way he tried to sell his endorsement of Biden was quite revealing to me. Okay, uh, so, so you don't buy the Democratic leadership's line, which is he couldn't win. Trump would have beaten him. That's absolutely ridiculous. First of all, you remember that if, if, um, if, uh, uh, if uh, Bernie had won South Carolina, he was going to sweep Super Tuesday. That was, that, was, uh, um, a sh that was a certainty. And then against Trump, I think he would have wiped the floor with Trump. Remember, uh, even Trump couldn't find a funny uh, name. You know, it was Pocahontas was Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> and Marcos was Little Mar uh, Little Mar um, Little Mark Marco, little, yeah. Little Marco. But the only thing you could come up with Bernie was Crazy Bernie, which was, it didn't resonate. It didn't fly. No, I'm talking about the country, though, you know, about whether people are ready for social democratic. Uh... And with the debate, and with the debate, I think Bernie could have won about 20 percent of Trump's base. Part of the base. Well, I won't say the base because there's the difference between the base and the potential. You're elect. not talking about the Christian right, but you are talking about the uneducated. Yes, I think if you remember. And I don't want to sing the praises of Bernie because I, I think he, what he did was spectacular. On the other hand, uh, there were real problems, but that's for another program. Um, but if you remember, he got a very respectful, 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 generous hearing from Fox News. I remember the uh, interviewers, the interlocutors, was a man and a woman, and they were typical white, you know, there were Fox News types, you know, Aryans from the South. Yeah. But they were just really respectful of him. And you know why? Because they knew he wasn't talking down to them. That was the key. You know, Bernie, during the campaign or after the campaign, he said there is a real problem with the elitism of the Democratic Party and talking down to these white people like they're, you know, yahoos and rednecks. Um, and he conveyed that, a real, genuine, heartfelt sympathy. You know, Bernie tells the story that he grew up, actually he grew up right near where I live. I pass his house every day. His father was a door-to-door -door salesman, and he talks about how, and I'm quoting him now, there were a lot of fights in the house over money. <laughs> and that stayed with him. And you know what? I know that. You know why I know that? There were a lot of fights in my house about money. And that for him, let's not use the drama of a searing memory, but it is a painful memory. And so you could see when he talks about the, tra the travails of working people, this problem with trying to cover your medical bills, or pay your mortgage. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah, it comes from a real place. Yeah. It comes from a real place. And I think he would have destroyed Trump in the debate because what Bernie had, the one thing Bernie had that nobody else could duplicate was that track record. 
People used to say, oh, Bernie Sanders, he's been saying the same thing for 50 years. I knew Bernie in the 1970s and he was saying that. Guess what? That's true. And that's what made him so credible, that we've been saying the same thing for 50 years. So I think that would have persuaded not just his Democratic constituency, but a large part of his Republican constituency, but with one critical caveat. The critical caveat is if the Democratic Party elite had a choice between Trump and their nominee, uh, Bernie, they would have chosen Trump. And the whole ruling elite across the board from the Republican right to, let's call it, the Schumer-Pelosi left would have joined together to stop the Bernie juggernaut. Of that, I have no doubt whatsoever. And that quite possibly would have proven to be, as it proved to be in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn, who was a close analog of the Bernie phenomenon, the whole ruling elite in Britain from the far right to the Labour Party elite joined together to stop Corbyn, and they succeeded, it's quite likely that would have happened here as well. But we have to understand why, not because Bernie was deficit in support, but when the whole ruling elite, with all of its institutions, when it brings to bear all of that institutional weight, it's very hard to win. If my wife were here, and she will see this segment, she'd be standing up cheering right now. My wife, a longtime Bernie Sanders supporter and someone who despises what she calls the uniparty of uh, consensus governance in this country. But that's for another show, as you say. I'm going to let you have the last word. Thank you very much, Norman for giving me time and for being such an interesting and dynamic uh, uh, interlocutor. Uh, your book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom uh, is worthy of everybody's attention. So I hope people buy it and read it. But thanks for coming on the show. Well, and let me say thank you for having me. Of all the interviews I did, I was most looking forward to yours. And because I consider you a significant challenge, uh, also I've watched enough of your interviews to see you bring on people who don't sloganeer and you're willing to take on serious challenges and you engage them in a serious way. So I was looking forward to this. Uh, I probably talked more than I uh, anticipated doing but I felt you asked me some questions which were very useful in particular uh, because I could have been caught in an embarrassing situation. You said, well, Norm, you know that most presidents don't know higher mathematics, so this is not a, a, a legitimate criticism. And it enabled me to elaborate my point and answer in advance, as it were, preemptively, the criticism that I had laid myself open to. So I thank you for that. and. Uh, Best of luck to you and to your wife. Thank you.